Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Music Therapy Show with Janice Lindstrom. I am Janice Lindstrom, the host and producer of this show, and we've been on for eight years. Can you believe it? Woo-hoo! Eight years of broadcasting with varying lengths of time between episodes. Today is Friday, May 27th, 2016. I had to think about that. And uh, I'm joined by Dr. Megan Mascow, as I always am, for Journal Club today, because it's Journal Club. And uh, uh, we're both a little bit a little bit frazzled. So we're going to jump into the journal. And uh, this time we are talking. Come on, buddy. We are talking about your family in the background. No, I'm at the park, actually. That's what you hear in the background. That's awesome that you could broadcast from the park. I ran home through some pretty nasty traffic to be here in time. Uh, Anyway, we're talking about the Journal of Music Therapy, the spring 2016 edition, volume 53, number one. So it's our first journal of this year. And um, there were four articles, which seemed like, oh, this will be a piece of cake, right? (laughs) (laughs) Until you started uh, reading them. Right. So three out of the four articles were related to psychometrics and and whatever that really means. Can you give us a little bit about what psychometric testing means? Yes, I will give you the bare bones. So psychometrics is really just about how we as researchers and clinicians figure out if the measures that we're using are reliable and valid. So do they so validity is Do they actually measure the thing that we think that they're measuring or that we want them to measure? And reliability is if we do it over and over and over again, will we get consistent results? And there are lots of different ways to determine reliability and validity, as you saw from the different articles. Um, Lots of different statistical tests you can use and ways you can do it. So you can, like, measure the, the, the thing that you're using or that you're developing. You can measure that against another tool that you already know has demonstrated reliability and validity. Um, you can test it against itself. You can have, so there's, we'll, and as we go through the different articles, we can kind of talk about the, the different ways that the authors um, used psychometrics. Uh, but there's, let me tell you what, I remember at the University of Iowa somewhere, buried somewhere at the University of Iowa is an entire psychometrics library. So wow. that gives you an idea. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, psychometrics is a field in and of itself, so it's it's pretty intense. <laughs> That's cool. So psychometrics, as so Megan speaks from more of the researcher perspective uh, about the journal on Journal Club. That's the role that she's been fulfilling. Is uh, she has a good research background and is able to explain a lot of these things. And my perspective is more of how can I apply what I'm reading to clinical work. And I have a broad variety of experience in clinical settings and populations. So I try to make it accessible to many music therapists, regardless of the setting or level of experience that you work in. So that's my role. So I feel like at Journal Club, Megan always sounds really smart, and I always sound really um, no. – I try to translate for the common person. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> You make me sound. You make me sound really fancy, and you way less fancy than you are. Well, you're pretty fancy. So, mm. <laughs> so, th- so when I opened up this issue and saw three out of the four articles were relating to testing the measurement or assessment tools, um, 
I thought my first thought was, man, how am I going to make this apply to clinical work? But I was able to find some applications. So let's jump into the first article, which was it's called Music Therapy Assessment Tool for Awareness in Disorders of Consciousness, Reliability and Validity of a Measure to Assess Awareness in Patients with Disorders of Consciousness. This is by Dr. Winnie McGee and her colleagues. Um, and I know that she offers training on this assessment tool. I know one happened in Houston most recently, or at least I believe it did. Um, so it, it abbreviates to MetaDoc is how I pronounce it. Um, and I liked it because all so all I read of this article was the abstract and the introduction. I skimmed the discussion and the conclusion, but I wasn't – I didn't really care what their findings were because I'm assuming that eventually they're going to, if they didn't find it to be reliable and valid, they were going to continue working on the document until it was. And if they did find it reliable and valid, they would let us know in the training, which you probably need to take if you're going to use this tool. I found this article valuable because the introduction um, had a lot of explanation of disorders of consciousness and the conditions that are categorized into this disorder. And I used to work in with people who have disorders of consciousness, so people in comas from traumatic brain injuries and things. And um, I found all of this language, it was really a review for me, but it was useful if you were a, like a new clinician working in this population, it would give you a good vocabulary and un- understanding of the vocabulary um and then obviously the awareness that this assessment tool is out there um if i were going to work in this population again i would definitely be taking this training and i think actually if i understand it correctly there are other applications than just working with people in comas in a hospital so um it's it's good to know about. I like to know about what's available in my field. So that's why I found this article valuable. And I'm, I'm going to jump in for a second. I found it really valuable because I don't necessarily work with people who have disorders of consciousness um, because I primarily work with people who have um, end-stage cancer. And mm-hmm. But I do work a lot with people where the nurses or the physicians will talk about so-and-so has become unresponsive. And I have found as a clinician that my experiences with people who are, you know, unresponsive is often using music is often very different from other mm-hmm. healthcare professionals who are working with that patient and the patient's family because people do respond differently to music than they do to other sorts of stimuli. And so for me, I read that introduction. Again, this is one of the best reviews of literature I've read in a long time. So kudos to the team. Um, but for me, because I don't have that vocabulary uh, for disorders of consciousness, um, this was really, really helpful to me to develop some more of that vocabulary and understand what are the differences between these different, between the different levels of um, a disturbance of consciousness. So that was super duper helpful for me. Um, I did like and then, how clearly it was written. Like each section is very clear. The purpose of the current study is very clear. The design the description and purpose for of the MetaDoc is clear. 
And so if you were going to use the scale or if you were going to, like, replicate this research or do something similar or if, if you designed an assessment tool that you wanted to test, this would be a good study to help you design your own, I think. Absolutely. And I love the way that they really they took the time to, in a very detailed way, to describe the – because this is not the first – so it's not the first article we've actually read about this particular scale. Um, but but it was nice for the review about how the scale is developed because, you know, when you're a, when you're a doctoral student, <coughs> Ms. Lindstrom, and, you know, having to <laughs> study, become a researcher, you know, it's great to be able to look back and go, okay, here's this really great tool. How did they develop this thing? Right. And mm-hmm. it's nice that they've, that they've really taken the time to very clearly write about the process and about how they have evaluated the reliability and validity. So the scale itself has, there's a, an overarching, uh, the, what they call the principal subscale, and then there the musical parameter and behavioral response type subscale, and the clinical information to inform goal setting and clinical care subscale. Um, and then there's a whole protocol and how to score it, which, again, go through the training and you'll learn, you know, a lot more about that. So, um, right. And they talked, the authors talked about how they recruited this convenience sample from uh, a specific unit for people who have PDOC and um, how they went ahead and collected the data. Um, again, fabulously written, how did they minimize the bias? Because in when you're talking with a convenient sample, there's a lot of potential bias that comes with using a convenient sample um, because, of course, it was convenient. <laughs> and so there's a lot of potential bias in there, and um, they talk about how they controlled for that. And then they talk about the actual analysis. Um, so you asked about psychometrics, and I said there's lots of different ways to determine reliability and validity. And two of the ways are used in this particular article. And one of them is inter-rater reliability, where they have two people essentially do the same thing and see if they come up with similar answers and, you know, compare and contrast the information that they got based on using the same uh, measurement tool. And then the other one is test-retest reliability, where you use the same test more than once on the same person. And you see, um, excuse me, so like the same researcher would test and then retest the person using the same scale to see if they get similar answers from the first time to the second time. And that's another way that you can determine if something is reliable or valid. Um, And they actually talked about there was a lot of, so it gets into a a whole lot of statistics very quickly. (laughs) We have our good... Yeah, we have our good friend Chromebox Alpha who comes into play. Um, please don't ask me to tell you what Chromebox Alpha actually means. I just know that it's <laughs> that we use it. But it's a statistical um, thing, right? It's That's a technical thing. Term. If you're doing it, research out there, to help you, you need to find your statistical thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So every question has a so every like quantitative question, right, has a statistical thing that goes with it. <laughs> <laughs> my, that's what, my that's where you pay people probably, to do it, right? Yes. Yeah, so, Don't you pay people so for that? I, 
that you do. And I actually just asked, uh, I asked about taking a statistics, an advanced statistics class at my new institution. And Deb Burns like said, you know, we have somebody who does that. <laughs> <laughs> we have people for that. So, but if you're like me, if you're like, I'm really good at running the math. I am not good at remembering what exactly each test does. But there are fabulous books out there, and there's one I have. I think it's called, like, The Zen of Statistics or something along those lines. Of and it course is it is. Fat, I know. It's fat, it is a great book. It's very, very good at explaining what each test does because I am odd. I, can, I remember how to do the math, but I don't remember what each test is for. So I always have to look up what each test is for. Um, See, I, I just remember that there's departments at the university that do this. That's what I remember. I don't know. There are, things, but and I that's know why it's there. really important. Well, it's why the journal has a why the Journal of Music Therapy has a statistical editor, and there, yes. and that's why it's important to have a statistician on your research team. God bless um, them. I know. Well, and let's not even let's not even get into the non-parametric test because you know that's when you okay. start assigning numbers to non-numbery things. So okay. Uh, yeah. Um, Let's get anyway, part. so they they uh, described they ran the Cronbach's Alpha um, and they came up with some uh, unacceptable results and some acceptable results or some sort of borderline results. Um, it seemed mm-hmm. like there was pretty darn good um, reliability, um, and but there was a little bit of in of internal inconsistency. I believe it was there were two questions where it seemed like there was pretty there was relatively poor consistency. Like one of them was sort of borderline, and the other one was eh, this doesn't seem like it's a very like they don't get consistent results with this mm-hmm. particular question. Um, so in the discussion, they talk a lot about um, you know it, it seems like most of the questions are pretty valid. And reliable, um, but they said it was the item seven for musical response. They're thinking about maybe removing that item from the scale, from the measurement tool, but they aren't quite sure yet because it's a really important question. And that brings up something in research all the time that we have to deal with, right? You maybe didn't get exactly mm-hmm. the results that you wanted, and the easy road would be to just say, well, okay, we'll get rid of that, but but if you really need <laughs> that piece of information, then you have to come up with a way to make it better, right? You have to refine it and make it better. And so it sounds like that's um, what they're going to do next with item seven. And that's the uh, musical right. response question. And they said that they were um, addressing some of these issues by, by changing w- what they do in the training so yes. I think they discovered that perhaps the training wasn't quite as clear, and so they changed how they did that for the, the three items, or at least, yeah, it was items six, seven, and yeah. ten. But they, they, and I think one of the things that this team has identified with this um, issue with item number seven is something that all music therapists and music therapy researchers struggle with, right, which is how do we define musical stimulus and how do we control mm-hmm. for external variables? Um, because the musical signal, as we know, is an extremely complex thing, so which, mm-hmm. which makes it can make it very complicated to try and measure. 
Um, but they do talk about how they have recommendations for managing the auditory environment. Um, and um, yeah, just thinking about how, you know, what is a musical experience? And, and they talk about even maybe defining, I think, the parameters a little bit more, like talking about tempo and timbre, um, oh, yeah. those, those aspects of the musical signal. And so maybe those will become like sub-questions or ways of scoring, you know, depending on what you did, maybe that influences the score. I'm not sure. But they're, they're um, like you said, it's, they're going to be working on that item. That actually was a fair chunk of the discussion section was about that particular item that didn't quite mm -hmm. measure up the way they thought it was going to. All right. Well, we spent more than half the show talking about that article, so we uh -oh. might have to well, be a little more concise on. going forward. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the next article was the only one that did, was not psychometrically testing a measurement tool. And it was by uh, Dr. Yang out of Florida State University. Uh, it's called Parents and Young Children with Disabilities, the Effects of a Home-Based Music Therapy Program on Parent-Child Interactions. And I used to work with parents of hospitalized children and actually completed my master's thesis studying the effects of music therapy on these parent-child interactions. And uh, I'm also a parent in a rather new one. And I'm always looking for information about how to, to help be a better parent. So this one I was interested in, and it was fairly easy for me to understand an application to clinical work as well. So I read the abstract and skimmed the rest of this article. And I focused on the description of the independent variable, which was the, the musical bonds program. And this mm -hmm. section had a detailed example of a session plan, as well as an operational definitions for the concepts used in parent-child interactions. So these operational definitions would help me to explain some of the techniques or concepts that I might use when I'm talking with parents or other professionals that I might be working with with these parents. And um, I thought the session plan example really helped to get, it helped to spark some ideas for my own session planning, but it also offers an example of how to write a session plan and mm -hmm. operational definitions, which will be useful when I'm teaching next fall. Yeah, so thank you, Dr. Yang. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. And I, again, as the, as the mother of now a uh, Heaven Help Me 16-year-old um, cool. who is autistic, we, yeah, <laughs> when he was little, we actually will do a little shout-out to Carol Olszewski, who's now in Ohio, um, we actually worked with Ms. Olszewski, or Miss Carol, as Max called her, um, on parent-child interactions. Because especially when you have a child who has a disability, it, that, those interactions become very different because they're in therapy a lot. They're, um, you, know, you have other multiple needs that you have to take care of that parents of typically developing children don't necessarily have to think about or worry about. So... Um, Mm -hmm. I so I, a lot of this first of all triggered my memories of having music therapy sessions yeah. with my son and Miss Carol, um, and also just the the importance of this work because those those parent child relationships are so important for you know child, for development human development and but they can be very difficult to establish and maintain. Um, you know, to encourage development when you're really focused on, frankly, how do I get through the next hour with my medically fragile or multiply disabled or, you know, what have you child. Right. 
Well, also, if your child has any kind of difficulties, developmentally or medically, I the parents that I worked with seem to start to feel like I am not the expert on my child and I need to yep. ask other experts. And I, Frankly, yeah, about everything. They, right. And I, I'm a parent of a typically developing child, and I still feel inadequate and like I don't know enough. But I do know that I know my kid. Um, and I, I, the parents that I worked with who have um, medically fragile or special needs children did not seem to have that, that same feeling. And because I was able to interact and hold and deal with all of my kids' problems when he would scream and I didn't know why. And, um, and then eventually I did know why. And sometimes they couldn't hold or interact with their child in the way that you normally do. And uh, sometimes the screaming didn't stop and you still didn't know why. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, and especially when your child can't communicate um, or there's so many other issues going on that you can't figure out, like, what is the thing that is causing this current crisis? You know, it's, it does. It really um, it diminishes your the, the self-efficacy, which is one of the things that Dr. Yang talks about. It really diminishes your sort of faith in yourself to be able to care for mm-hmm. your child. So... Uh, yeah, that's a good one. If you're working with parents and children, read that one. Um, the next oh, yeah. one is by Dr. Baker, Felicity Baker, uh, Dr. Silverman, the <laughs> writer of many Mike. articles, and Dr. McDonald. So this is a uh, who's from Scotland. Edinburgh is in Scotland, right? Um, yeah, Edinburgh. I love him. Yeah, but he's a great so, actor. Uh, <laughs> hey, this is a very multicultural study, but it's the reliability and validity of the meaningfulness of songwriting scale, MSF, with adults on acute psychiatric and detoxification units. So and again, we have, a, we have a, yeah, and this is, this, I found this article personally very interesting because they are talking about um, meaningfulness and making meaning and the different types of making meaning, and that's a big part mm-hmm. of spirituality, is making meaning. Um, and that's one of the things that I study is uh, spirituality. You can probably hear a helicopter because the hospital is not that far away. And it looks like life flight is landing. Um, yeah, we life flight, we don't, um, 85% of healthcare in the state of North Dakota happens in critical access hospitals, which are hospitals that have, I believe it's fewer than 20 beds. So we do a lot of life flighting wow. in this state. Wow. A lot. And we don't have a level one trauma center. Um, oh, so in the entire state. So it, we do a lot of life flighting. Uh, our hospitals have jets. And wow. It's the, healthcare in North Dakota is very different, <laughs> I'm betting, than healthcare in metropolitan Texas. <laughs> yes, it sounds like it. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so life flight is a, life flight is a common, common sound around here. Um, but they, the, the authors talk a lot about what the importance of meaning is and making meaning is, um, and and they talk about the importance of having a way to be able to measure that, because that and if you think about it as a music therapist, right? As as my internship director Joey um, Walker said to me, she goes, you know, you have to be able to figure out how to measure the immeasurable, right? Mm-hmm. In music therapy, 
because so much of what happens in our sessions and so much of what we hear from clients is really difficult to measure. Um, you can't really run a t-test on it. So I was very I'm, – I'm thankful to see this team tackling such a complicated and um, important question. So well done, team. And, again, if you want to understand why this is important, excellent review of literature and yeah, how it, it, rela- how it relates to mental health. And I scanned yeah. the I, – I read the abstract and then scanned the rest of the article. Um, and so it talks about defining meaning-making. And what I really liked was the, um, the Venn diagram that was on page 59 yeah. of their proposed components of meaningfulness because Venn diagrams are fun, right? And, and it had three circles, relational, affective, and cognitive, and it sort of helped to categorize the different things and where, where the, they overlap. So, like, in affective would be enjoyment, rewarding, emotions, uh, achievement. And then cognition and affective would be engagement and creativity. And then relational is sharing self with others. And all, the, all three of those are um, found in identity, autonomy, and sense of agency. And so it just helps to – it helps – to clarify some of that undefinable things, the proponents of the components of meaningfulness, um, and I'm mm-hmm. glad to know about the MSS, the meaningfulness of songwriting scale, because I'm going to be looking for it for when they start presenting about how to use it and what it is and where it's applicable. Um, and because I work with adults on acute psychiatric units, I haven't really done much detox, but I've had friends and family there in detox, so you know. That part I still find applicable, and knowing that this is coming means that I can look for it maybe at the next conference. And again, as a researcher, they do a fabulous job of explaining the process of getting to this point where they have something that they can test. Yes. And so basically, because I know we're going to run out of time, do you -hmm. you want the, the, the down and dirty summation? Yeah. Okay. So good news. It's a pretty darn good. It's a pretty darn good measurement tool, um, but it seems like it's a better measurement tool for people who are not going through detox. That it seems like there's probably just so much other. There's so many other variables involved with people who are detoxing um, that this may not might not be the scale in its current form. Might not be the scale to necessarily use with those folks. But it seems like it's a pretty darn good scale to use with people who are not going through detox but who are in the psych, you know, who are in behavioral health. Mm-hmm. And that makes okay. a lot of sense Excellent. because I do work with it's people tough. who are going through detox and there is a lot going on. There is. There's a lot of components to that. Um, all right. So then this last article is the music – Attentiveness Screening Assessment Revised, M-A-S-A-R, a study, excuse me, a study of technical adequacy. And uh, this one, the lead researcher is Dr. Eric Walden, who is one of the, he's on my list of presenters that I like to emulate. So I like reading his stuff too, because he just, he he's presents in a really, he presents dry stuff in a really interesting way. And uh, I strive <laughs> to be like that. <laughs> yes, it is a gift. Um, so, and as I was reading this, I was kind of imagining that this fulfilled some sort of student project for his classes at University of the Pacific, because uh, all of the the co-authors are 
from the same university. And so I imagine that these were his students publishing for some degree or something. Um, but I like this one because the introduction has some nice information about procedural support. And I used to work in a pediatric hospital when I, and, and did some pr procedural support. Um, so I just like the vocabulary of, uh, that it spoke about or the different interventions that are used for procedural support and the ways that it's done. Mm -hmm. um, and, again, I like knowing that there's a, a test coming that I might be able to use at some point. And uh, basically, I'm going to file this one away for when I teach the medical music therapy class in the spring. Yes. Oh, and my I other favorite thing that was that well. he used he used the C is for cookie song. Uh, I know. Well, not in I the not that. in the not in the revised version, in the original version. Oh. Yeah. Darn. Is yes. it? Well, because they had to hold up a cookie in the original one, and there were some issues with, you know, again, being able to adequately measure, is this child really holding up the cookie? You know, how high does it have, you know, right operational definition, how right. high does it have to be in order to, to meet the criteria? So in the right. new one, they just point. Okay. They point to pictures. Yeah. Um, so, like I said, different ways to measure the psychometrics of something. The way that they did it was they compared it to other measures which already have noted reliability and validity. Um, so they looked at the, I call it the NEPC2, um, and then the Woodcock-Thompson <laughs> test of cognitive abilities. Um, I, sadly, I know the Woodcock-Thompson test of cognitive abilities is a little too well because, again, being the mother of an autistic child, my kid has has had his battery of uh, tests. So I know the older version of the, the Woodcock-Johnson. Um, so, so what they did was they looked at uh, their measurement tool and then compared it to the Nepsi 2 and the Woodcock-Johnson to see, um, you know, how they compared. Mm -hmm. So, And how did they compare? They compared pretty darn well. <laughs> um, the, but they again they got some they got actually got some uh, results that they didn't expect. So they used a different statistic, right? Every everything that you do has a different statistic that goes with it. So for them, um, they were looking at Pearson's R, doing test retest reliability, and then um, they also. Did they just use Pearson's R? I think they did. Pearson's R is actually the one I know the best. It's like the, you know, primacy and recency. It was the first one I learned. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the first and the last ones that I use are to learn are the ones that I know the best. It's all the stuff in the middle that gets jumbled up. That's where Chromebox Alpha lives, somewhere in the middle. Um, <laughs> but they actually, yeah. But they actually, um, they correlated pretty well. Um, and they then they talked about um, how how those the Woodcock Johnson like how it correlates with other ones. So like you might be familiar with the Wechsler um, intelligence mm -hmm. scale, but they actually found some some interesting results, some results that they I don't think were necessarily expecting. And one of them was they thought I'm trying to find the right page now. Um, 
they expected that, what was it? Here it is. It's interesting to note that item one tended to predict auditory attention scores better among the five to nine-year-olds, while item two did so for aged four years. Um, oh, it is Sylvia's for cookie. You're right. But they just point to the cookie, I think. And then, but they weren't expecting that. They were actually expecting that the younger children would do better, sort of flip-flop. They thought that the younger children would do better on item one and that the older kids would do a little bit better on item two, but it actually was the reverse of what they thought they were going to find, which as a researcher is always really sort of first mind-boggling, second, a little bit frustrating, and then third, you're like, wow, look at the thing I learned that I had no idea I was going to learn. So that was pretty fun. Cool. Well, that sounds like a party in the research world. <laughs> it's, well, yeah, it's always a little bit bittersweet. And you're like, darn it, I didn't learn the thing I thought I was going to learn. And then usually some well, nice person comes along and says, yeah, but you learned this other thing that you didn't think you were going to learn. Right? It's like John Lennon says, life is what yeah. happens when you're busy making other plans. Exactly. All right. Thank you so much for explaining psychometrics and what was going on with those articles today and there I uh, we are already people are super i know we're out of time but if people are interested you can find good books that aren't horrible <laughs> find good books that aren't horrible that's sage advice from dr mascow <laughs> and i will i will happily i will you know what i will send you a list of books about psychometrics and statistics that are not horrible that aren't horrible about that. <laughs> okay that we can put on the blog are rather thick Music Therapy Perspectives, the oh, first, boy. Volume, first one for uh, 2016. So uh, we're going to be doing that one on July 22nd. So read up. You've got plenty of time and join us for that one. Um, and uh, we're both going through uh, some transitions over the summer, right? You're moving. I am moving in in less than four weeks. Uh-huh. That's not stressful. We closed on our house yesterday. Yay. And why are you moving? I am moving to join the faculty at Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis with the incomparable Dr. Deborah Burns and Dr. Sherry Robb in the Indiana University School of Nursing. That's fantastic. I'm a pretty lucky uh, gal. You are a lucky gal. uh, That's cool. Um, And then I'm not moving. But uh, I am but. moving into a full-time professor role at Sam, at Sam Houston. No, at SMU, <laughs> Southern Methodist That's University. Where you went to school. <laughs> it is where I went to school. <laughs> Go Bearcats! Mm-hmm. Uh, but Southern Methodist University, and I am enrolling in a Doctor of Liberal Studies program that starts this fall. <laughs> so I'm excited about that. I'm going to be studying liberally, and. Uh, Man, I'm going to be so much smarter by this time next year. We won't even be able to stand it. <laughs> do, you, do you want me to tell you what you're going to learn in your doctorate? What am I going to learn? That you don't know anything. That's what you learn. Oh, yeah. Right? And that's how you always <laughs> learn. There's so much knowledge out there that you can't possibly know anything. Mm-hmm. That's, yep, that's what I learned after being a so-called expert on something, is that I don't actually know anything. All right. And that's like the true form of knowledge right, right. Well, recognizing like you don't know anything <laughs> yeah 
the live show ended about five minutes ago, and we've got stuff to do. So, uh, okay. hey, ha- have a great month, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again. I'll try to remind you in the beginning of July to start reading, okay? <laughs> All right. All right. We can do it. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thanks Bye. for listening, everybody. We'll talk soon. <laughs> Bye.